From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn, a podcast produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Thomas Phillips. Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, put Indigenous Affairs front and centre in his victory speech. He committed to the Uluru Statement, a petition that calls for a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. But what impact will this have on the mainstream media's blind spots when it comes to reporting on Aboriginal issues, especially what First Nations communities describe as the downplaying of Black deaths in custody? This week, our executive producer Louisa Lim explores these issues with Madeline heyman Rebert, a Gomorrah woman and award-winning Indigenous Affairs journalist. Louisa started off by asking Madeline about the significance of the Labour government's commitment. Well, from my perspective, I don't um, think that it's really going to change much because it's not necessarily going to have any power. It'll be an advisory body, which I feel I could be wrong, but, you know, handpicked people from within the community that will be part of it. And I just worry, I guess, for the grassroots part of our community that their voices won't be heard as much. There was also like a lot of controversy around the establishment of the Uluru Statement. There was a meeting that happened out at Uluru and um, a lot of people were just tapped on the shoulder to join the meeting and it wasn't really an open invitation. As a result, many grassroots families weren't invited to have their say on the wording that is within the Uluru Statement. Because the campaign has gotten so big, which is great, like I think that having something is better than having nothing. Those other voices, the grassroots ones, have been squashed, I guess. And um, like my family was some of the people that walked out of the Uluru Statement. So I guess it's good to keep in mind that there's two different perspectives on it. But I don't necessarily think it's problematic that it's happening. I just think that it's taking away, you know, like the calls for treaty and also the sequencing, which the Greens changed and people got really upset about was they want truth first because truth-telling, which is what um, the Victorian government's going through at the moment with the treaty process, they've set up the Uruk Justice Commission and that's to go around and collect all of those stories to be able to tell those to the wider Australian community because I think that, you know, we really need to understand those injustices before we can decide what change is needed or how we're going to go about treaty. So what would you like to see, you know, if you were if you were advising the new government, what would you like to see them do? I think that the truth telling process needs to come out more. I mean, I was never taught my own history in high school or in primary school. I think um, maybe a push for more education type stuff around truth telling and also like just allowing us as Aboriginal people to have self-determination in what truths we want to share and how we want to share them. So let's talk about this research that you've just been doing, this podcast that you're about to launch, which is all about the media coverage of Indigenous affairs. I mean, what did you find? How is the media doing? Um, So it wasn't my own research. It was uh, research from the University of Technology, Sydney. Um, Professor Heidi Norman and Archie Thomas were kind of heading the research, along with a few other people. It's been going on for years and years. I think Professor Heidi Norman's entire career has been looking at the way Aboriginal stories are told within the media. We've just finished it and we're figuring out when we're going to launch it now. We talked to a whole bunch of people that work in the media, like so Aboriginal journalists and also some of the academics that have done the research. And I guess like 
we're doing better, <laughs> but we're not doing as well as we could be. And there's also, you know, the difference between our community media and also the mainstream media and sort of like the ABC, I would include in the mainstream media, of course. But then we also have like Indigenous X, which is a grassroots Aboriginal owned organisation. You can follow them on Twitter. They're really good. They have different hosts every few days. That's a really good way of, I think, of truth telling as well, having those organisations. I think they just need to be more amplified by the like commercial and mainstream media. But when it comes to mainstream media coverage, I mean, is there enough of it? Do you think they're telling Aboriginal stories the right way or is it just kind of marginalised, an add-on? When I started at Channel 10, I was only there for three months before I left. Um, (laughs) But uh, it was interesting because I found in that situation, and this is what I get worried about when we're encouraging commercial news outlets to tell more Aboriginal stories or even embrace the fact that we're here (laughs) is that it seems in the end a little bit tokenistic because I was you know working in the newsroom um, I got the opportunity to put together the I don't know if you all saw it but uh, we had for NAIDOC week last year a Indigenous weather map each place was in the Aboriginal word for those capital cities Um, and basically That was really great that we did that, but that was sort of where it ended. When I went back into the newsroom and I said, would pitch an Aboriginal story, like this is a really important thing that's happening in the Wurundjeri community this, you know, this week or whatever, I was always, you know, given a carjacking story or something else like that. So I think that it's also difficult for, for them from an internal perspective, like getting their watchers to, to like watching Aboriginal news or that kind of stuff because they've never done it. It's something new. And I think that there's a bit of a like worry that their ratings will go down or that kind of thing. So, I mean, your beat is Indigenous affairs. And it's a question that I'm often asked by diverse journalists, whether they should cover their own communities or whether that's something that then pigeonholes you and then you're unable to do other stories. What kind of advice would you give to people starting out, uh, people from diverse backgrounds? Um, You definitely don't have to be like put into a box. I have always rejected that in my career. Like anytime I've been tried to be put into a box, I just don't like that. And I think that you should always push back on becoming that. So like there's Brooke, Boney, who she wanted to do entertainment reporting and now she is. She did start like doing Indigenous affairs, but that was because, you know, she wanted to and she liked it. Then she was able to build up her career enough to be able to go into um, entertainment reporting, which is really, really nice for her. There's also um, Rangi Harini, who was the WA correspondent for NITV when I worked there. And she left to go to, what's it called again? The West Australian. She left the West Australian. They offered her a job as an Indigenous Affairs reporter, which was really exciting because they'd never had one before. Um, So she started there, but she had always wanted to do entertainment reporting as well. So she just like was like, I don't like this anymore. I don't want to do it. I want to do this. And because she had done a great job, they were happy to accommodate her. And also the fact that she's there in the newsroom and present also will change it will change any newsroom or change the way they report about things because you're not going to not care about your colleagues sitting next to you when you're writing a story. Um, you're going to ask them, like have a conversation with them and educate them. Also, you don't have to do that. So don't feel like you do. 
but I've always enjoyed educating people and teaching them things because I know that although it can be you know emotionally draining on me it's going to help my entire community just to make that one person understand something and I mean what has it been like for you it it seems to me that the Australian media is still very much a closed club and and you know a lot of the higher more senior management positions are held by people who've been there for a long time it's very sort of entrenched how have you found the newsroom as a place to work I mean I know you've written about how Indigenous journalists are subject to subtle and overt racism so when I wrote that I was sort of speaking about my experience at NITV but also just what I'd seen from SBS I guess like because when I was the Victorian correspondent I would work closely with the SBS news team. So if I was covering something that was of interest to them, um, they would take my package. And I just remember they, I don't know, they're more, they're, they can be a little bit disrespectful sometimes when it comes to boundaries on things like cultural protocol and things like that. I think there's that line between like you're on deadline and also being respectful. Like, so with NITV, for example, we would never publish something um, so say some someone died in custody, we wouldn't post a story about that until we had spoken to the family and they said it was okay for us to do that. Whereas I find other news outlets, like they will just like, no, nah, we'll just run the story, let's get it first. And that's not always the best thing to do. Who gets to tell Indigenous people's stories? Ideally, we'd want newsrooms to be diverse places, but that's not always the case. So how can reporters best cover communities they're not part of? And I guess... How should reporters, you know, find out about those cultural protocols and respect them? Yeah, um, so there's like a number of ways you can do it. It's obviously engaging with the community that you're going to. I'll just give, I don't know, I'll give you an example. Okay, say someone dies in custody. This is an issue that I think we have a lot. Usually I would reach out to, if I didn't know the family personally, usually because I've got, I can usually find the family because I just have a lot of, like we're very, a very close community, but if I can't find them, I'll ring the local, you know, Aboriginal services that they have or the land council and try and track them down. And then once I do speak to them, I just respectfully ask them, is it okay for me to report on this? Um, and just also reassure them. And this is something that I, I don't know um, that you will need to push for a little bit, like, but just reassure them that you're going to be telling the story the way they want it told, because there's a lot of I mean, the media is like done as dirty a lot of times. So um, there's a lot of hesitation when it comes to talking to other reporters. Obviously, being Indigenous helps me a lot because they, I can naturally just have a yarn with them. And usually we know someone in each other's family somehow or a friend, a mutual friend or something. <laughs> but um, I think that's that's the biggest thing, just community consultation and also speaking with the people that are directly affected by it, not anyone else, not even not even the government agencies, I would go straight to community first and get their side of the story before you go getting a response from those government organisations. Yeah, because you've written about how white journalists tell the stories the wrong way under the guise of fair and balanced journalism. I mean, what do you mean by that? Do you mean sort of prioritising police voices over family voices or what? Yeah, I think it's also the way stories are angled sometimes. It's like, say the headline, it was like, police say this happened or whatever. They're going off what the police said and then they'll say, but the family says this, like down below the fold, that's not giving us a fair 
voice in their stories and reporting. Also, when we when you sit there and look look at like how in, like institutionally racist a lot of these organizations are, like the police and the prisons and things like that, um, then you need to be listening to their family story first and you know figuring out what is the actual story here because the police and the prisons are always just going to tow the same line. Also, you can get a juicier story if you go talk to the family. Who else has this happened to? How, like, is this the third person that this has happened to in the last year or whatever? Mm. You wrote how journalists are told to remain impartial, to be unbiased, essentially to be white. Uh, I mean, do you think it's time for Australian journalism to have its own Black Lives Matter moment? Yeah, I think they tried to, but I've I've found already they're not prioritising Black stories. I haven't seen many stories about some of the recent deaths in custody that we've had this year, whereas last year it was like, it's the popular thing, that's why we're all jumping on it, and that's why we're all going to do stories on these things, on you know, these people, poor people dying. And now it's just a bit like gone back to, I feel, how it was before that. I, I guess I'm also oh, the, wondering if you think having a new Labour government might change that, might the focus be shifting in a bigger way? Yeah, I, th- I think I think it has the potential to go that way because I guess, though, that's like with the Liberal government, everything was very unfair and there was a lot of you know unfairness happening towards uh, First Nations people so we weren't being listened to and then to go and have the Labour government talking about it um, I don't know if it's going to have like more of a like a positive effect where people want to go and tell the stories or if it's going to have more of a negative effect because before people were angry about things and that's why they were speaking out we'll see I guess and for young journalists entering newsrooms, what can they do? How can they help amplify uh, First Nations voices? It starts at a personal level. So I think you need to personally engage with Indigenous communities, like come to our rallies, come to our NAIDOC Week march, um, come to our, we have lots of little gigs and things of Black artists um, and even go talk to some of the organisations and get to know people there or make some contacts because those people will, if they trust you and you like build a relationship with them, they'll come to you with stories. And that means that you're not always, you know, thinking, oh, like I could do this, but don't know how, because they'll come, they'll naturally come to you if they think you're a great journalist and a lovely person. And then I think in the newsroom, um, what you need to be doing, I guess, is pitching, actively pitching those stories to your um, news editors and trying to get stories out there and also telling them the right way. So like making sure that you're getting community, you know, engaging with community and you're talking to the right people in community and that you're doing everything respectfully and you make them feel culturally safe. I, I guess one of my questions is about whether sometimes, you know, you have these sort of normal journalistic protocols of not allowing your interviewees to read stories before they're out and stuff like that. Do you sometimes suspend those in the interests of cultural se- sensitivity? I don't really think I've had anyone ask me to read my story, but I might give them a quick call and say if there's something that I feel like might be a little bit controversial for them or the way I've worded something, I'll just give them a call and I'll just say, hey, I've written this in. Is this okay with you? And I like if someone asked me to send the story to them first, I would. Um, and I would also push back if I had an editor or something saying, we need that story. I'll be like, well, they want to read it first and we need to be respectful. And I guess there's also a bit of a um, 
nervousness about who can tell whose stories. And that's something that you yourself referred to. Um, how do you sort of draw those lines of who can tell uh, First Nations stories? Um, I think it, anyone can, really, as long as you are going about it the right way. I think in that that bit that you read out, I was referring to how they kind of put pressure on Aboriginal journalists to be unbiased, but it's a bit hard when, like, you are Aboriginal. They're, like, pretty much saying, forget about the fact that you're Aboriginal, just write this story from a white perspective. So, you know, there's two sides to it, but that's not really how it works. It's kind of like ignore all the cultural protocols, ignore all of that and just write the story. But then when it comes to, you know, other people telling those stories, you've just like, honestly, just be respectful and be nice. And as long as community trusts you and will talk to you, <laughs> most importantly, then that means you're doing a good job. I think um, there's a few people like Andrew Bolt that I would say could not tell Indigenous stories, but <laughs> otherwise, yes. <laughs> And, and I mean, for you yourself, when the, the, there must be also a certain amount of trauma in having to tell so many stories of deaths in custody. You know, we listened to a 7 a.m. podcast that you did and you just sounded bone weary. You know, these deaths, deaths in custody don't seem to make headlines in the same way that they might in the States and elsewhere. Um, is it traumatic for you as a journalist having to do that? over and over again yeah like I mean it's not just that it's kind of everything because we're so close as communities where every time someone dies like it's upsetting for everyone um, I think that where I get my passion from is from being angry about it and I did this for too long so I would try and not think about what had happened I'd just try and come at it from a place like from a place of anger which ultimately makes me a better writer I think because um, when something's unjust I feel more passionate about it um, to be able to tell the story and try and get something to change for those people and while nothing ever can change from you know journalists just writing stories in terms of the whole entire justice system or whatever other colonial system we're talking about the fact is that you can you can help that family get their story out and have it told the way that they want it told and the, the other thing, though, you have to be really wary of is burnout. So because I was pushing aside my own feelings to be able to do that, I, like, ended up completely burnt out after Arnie Tanya Day's case. And I think that was a few months later I decided to quit and go freelance because it was that and an accumulation of all these other <laughs> previous stories that I'd told and I didn't realise how much it, it had affected my mental health. It's been really nice to take a break too and be freelance because it's it's also great that I'm at a point in my career where I'm able to pick and choose the projects I work on. If I feel something will be a bit too emotionally draining for me, I'm very conscious now that I step back and think, should I do this or will it mess up my mental health? Like I'm in a good place now. I don't want to go back to back then a few years ago. That was Madeline Heyman Reber. The Yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Madeline. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. See you next week.